Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. This is Flop Redeemer, the podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Today, I'm talking about Million Dollar Bill, Whitney Houston's last single released during her lifetime, which, after more than 25 years topping the charts, hit number 100 on the Billboard Hot 100. Welcome back. Hello. Welcome. It's been quite a week. (laughs) Two weeks, I guess. It's heating up in here. Um, I will keep this short. I'm I'm, I'm sweating, sweating my... uh, don't you have an air conditioner in there? I thought. Well, I it's not in this loud. room. It's in it's in the other side of the garage. So I don't mm. I don't know if it'll help. We need to uh, ask our fans. We're going to start a GoFundMe uh, for a ductless air conditioner for your garage. <laughs> and it'll make too much noise. It's it's fine. Well, if you fun. do the ductless ones, they're very quiet. Okay. Um. Well, what's up? What's up, Jason? What's what's new? What's happening? Clearly, it's hot. Uh. <laughs> Last week we talked about J Lo. This week we're talking about Whitney. I think this is the first time we're talking about Whitney because we haven't really talked about her that much, even no. in passing. Um. Well, when we talked about Dee Dee War- Warwick, Warwick, mm. because that's Whitney's cousin, Dion's sister. Yes, and I, I like I watched the whole Whitney Houston documentary. Mm, yes yes that, for get, that yeah for context um but yeah other than that i mean whitney rarely comes up because whitney has uh perhaps rarely flopped rarely flop i want to say rarely flopped but also and i don't know how you feel about this but it's hard to talk about whitney these days knowing what we know yeah i mean and how the story ended my cold my cold uh my cold stone like inanimate heart is not triggered by like, I, thoughts of Whitney's. I, yeah. I don't think I ever really had like a a personal connection to Whitney Houston, and I think in my mind, so much of her struggles were like public. Mm-hmm. So when she did pass, and the circumstances of her passing, like it wasn't it wasn't a shock. That. You know, Bobby Christina. You Bobby that. Christina. That shocked me. Yeah. When Bobby Christina passed, that that was like oh shit you know yeah i think what, what's what's surprising to me so so whitney i do have a personal i don't want to say personal because it's like we never met obviously but i have a deeper connection with with whitney because um when she was first becoming i don't want to say first becoming popular but when i was a kid about eight or nine years old my dad got us our first uh cd player and and you know mm-hmm. like a multi disc CD player, and he worked on bass, and uh, one of the Air Force bases where I, near where I grew up, and they had a library where you could check out CDs, and he brought home the Whitney album, the first one, oh. and so that was the first CD I probably ever heard, and I was like blown away by her voice as as the rest of the world was. I mean it. That that crystal clear quality, the strength, the the vocals, you know, amazing. And then shortly thereafter, you know, the bodyguard came out, and the bodyguard soundtrack became an obsession of mine. And so, like, I would just wanted to be Whitney Houston. I wanted to sing like her. 
like I, you know, and 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 um, oh, before the bodyguard, there was her singing the national anthem at the Super Bowl, which started a now almost thirty year, third more than thirty year obsession with who's going to sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. Uh, for me, and uh, <laughs> that Super Bowl, that that performance, like I could not believe this was the same song that every once in a while we'd sing in school. <laughs> and uh, I, like most other people had never heard it sung that way. And it kind of just really captivated me. And to the point where like, I would sing it all the time. And I would try to like imitate it. Um, and I was at my friend's. I remember this. I'll never forget this. Um, I was at my friend's house playing and we were supposed to go see a movie. And I don't know. We were there. I was there like a couple hours early, just hanging out. And I kept singing the song and the mom, my friend's mom came out and was like, we're not going to go to the movie if you keep singing that song. (laughs) And it's one of the most, one of the earliest feelings of shame (laughs) and embarrassment (laughs) that I can recall, like deep, deep shame and embarrassment (laughs) that like I was being annoying. I think it was like the first time where it was like, oh, like, you know, as a child, sometimes you can kind of do whatever. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's cute. It was the first time that someone was like, no, it's not cute. Stop. You're going to ruin the day. And so, uh, you know, that it, it, my, 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 my history with Whitney Houston goes back. But I think sometimes that just makes it hard to talk about her now because, you know, you say it wasn't a shock. And yes, her, her, her passing, you know, came at the end of like, a, almost basically a decade of very widely, highly publicized uh, drama. But I never thought she would die, if that makes sense. Like, I, I thought she'd kind of, like, be kicking around. Like, just kind of be, like, mm-hmm. a sort of joke. if that Because she'd been a joke for a long time. By the time By the time Million Dollar Bill comes out, she'd been sort of a joke for 10 years. Like, the butt of a joke. Yeah. I mean, she had gone through the whole like reality series. Yeah, yeah. She had very, very public decline. Yeah, and so like I just, I just assumed we'd always sort of, that we'd reach stasis, mm-hmm. right? That she was always going to kind of be in this in between, neither here nor there, just sort of eking it out. And and I, I didn't expect the gut punch of her just like passing so tragically, so publicly. <laughs> You know, and so so sometimes it's hard for me to listen to like early Whitney because it's so joyful knowing like all of the things that we know were going on at the time, like while she was doing this and like the struggles that it created for her. So um that yeah, that's what that's why I think it's interesting we're talking about her today because like we don't like we talked about Mariah, like we we haven't really talked about some of these like really big pop stars who sort of set the tone for decades of music who are still influencing people to this day because to your point, they don't really flop. Mm -hmm. And when they do, they flop hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. What else should we talk about? I don't know. Just get into it. I mean, we can get it. Should we take a, take a quick break and we'll come right back. Um, I would like to remind everyone that I did add it. Oh, you did. I did. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I would like to remind everyone that songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Check us out on social media at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. As always, you can email us at flopredeemer at gmail. 
Com. We'll be right back. Well, today I'm going to talk about Whitney Houston's last single that was released during her lifetime, Million Dollar Bill. It's off her last studio album, 2009's I Look to You. Million Dollar Bill was the official worldwide lead single off of this album, but in the US it was the number it was the second single, the number 2 single. Okay. Um this song, so Million Dollar Bill, Wikipedia describes it as an up-tempo pop groove, which I don't What does that even mean? Um <laughs> it opens with this funky classic soul bassline and it is a sample from another song which I do not know. So, uh, <laughs> but it's got this like, it's it, it, the way the baseline, it's like, it's very thumpy. It's in your face and it's just the baseline. It's a, it's a, it's a grooving baseline. Um, a pop groove, it, you might say. <laughs> an up-tempo pop groove. It's not quite disc. It's not quite disco. It's not quite funk, even though it is funky. It, it feels like classic soul to me. Like a, like an old Isley's Brothers song, Isley Brothers song, or you know, I don't want to say dirty. It feels grimy. It's like kind of seventies, very seventies, right? very seventies, but not quite disco. And it's just that with the hi hat on top, and Whitney's just singing kind of like a oh, she's singing oh, <laughs> I don't want to sing it over the top of this of this. Just kind of you know something. It feels very anticipatory like something's gonna happen like it feels it's like it's like building the excitement Mm -hmm. her voice comes in strong her o's um sound very her voice sounds very kind of husky and rich and i i was captivated by this song immediately because she sounds good and if you remember this time this is 2009 she hadn't sound good sounded good in a long time and you know it was you know her her voice had been in decline for many years and this song like she sounds very strong it's it it's reminiscent of a of an earlier time um the the verse kicks in and then by the time you get to the chorus it's very joyous it's very uplifting the song has a very bouncy uplifting feel to it it's not hip it's not trendy if you think about like what else was going on in 2009 it was not contemporary r&b really for that time it wasn't pop for sure um it wasn't dance uh which you know one of her biggest songs that decade had been the remix of it's not right but it's okay Mm -hmm. so it wasn't really anything that you expected but it was very comfortable It, it fit very it felt very classic it felt very appropriate i think she was 53 at the time mm-hmm. um so it just felt very appropriate for that moment and for this sort of i want to say comeback um her entry back her her it was her first studio album since 2002 so her it was her first album in 7 years so it was a great reintroduction back to her um the song itself was written by Alicia Keys uh who asked Clive Davis when she Clive Davis had been on Oprah and was like talking about he'd been working with with Whitney. Um, and when Alicia Keys, who also had been discovered or was mentored by Clive Davis, when she heard this, she reached out to Clive and asked if she could if she could produce something for this album. So he, she wrote this song, 
Um, and then it was produced by Swiss Beats, who, you know, I don't know if they were married yet at the time. This is 2009. So I think so. Right. Yeah. It's, and and people really commented on the fact that like this doesn't sound like anything Swiss Beats would do, mm-hmm. but they liked it. It was it felt very classic. It was good production. It was solid, especially for this effort because you don't want to embarrass Whitney. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this was a this was especially precarious time, and so it it's a good effort. Well, it's also like you know, given the struggles that Whitney Houston had had up to that point. It, it's probably hard to figure out like, well, what is the sound that you yeah. bring back with Whitney Yeah, what do you Houston? come back with? Because I don't think, yeah. that, I don't know that you would want to do like a club anthem or something mm-hmm. given what Whitney Houston had been through. Um, you know, and, you know, kind of hearkening back to like a more classic, classic soul, classic R&B sound. Even though it's funny because like, you know, you think of Whitney Houston as debuting in the 80s with a very particular type of music. Like mm-hmm. this sound, it kind of, you know, not, it, it's not, it's, it's not, not authentic to her. It's not authentic to her, you know, yeah. but at the same yeah. time it feels like, oh, like the way her vocal sits in it, the way that her voice at this point in time was sounding, which was mm-hmm. like, you know, not, it's not the same Whitney Houston voice that you're used to. It wasn't crystal clear. It was husky. There was a smokiness to the voice. Yeah. And it was deeper. It didn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't soar necessarily Mm -hmm. in the way that you're maybe used to, but you know, there's a richness there Mm -hmm. that is kind of the through line, I think for her vocals. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you say that about, because it is classic and like what, it's a good point. Like when you're someone like Whitney Houston, and, you know, just as a reminder, I mean, Whitney Houston is one of or was one of the best selling music artists of all time. She sold over 200 million records. And I think it's important, you know, now that we're, you know, 12, uh, I guess she died in 2012. So we're almost we're nine years out from almost 10 years away from when she passed. It's kind of easy to forget because of that last decade, because of all the troubles that she faced it's hard to forget what an impact Whitney Houston had. 200 million uh, records worldwide, one of the most awarded artists in history. She's the only artist to have seven consecutive number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100. Mm. Um, and that was a string from 1985 to 1988. So to your point about like the kinds of music, you know, she, she was producing at that time, uh, she, what she became famous for was like this very pop-focused R&B. And some would say, and it was argued later, that it was like for white audiences. It was sanitized R&B. She presented this sort of, quote unquote, squeaky clean image, but had these soulful, soul-inflected, I I guess is probably better, soul-inflected vocals that were so polished, like she didn't sound black, if that, (laughs) you know, for lack of a better phrasing, right? I mean, that was kind of like the key to her appeal at the time. Um... But, you know, all that to say, she got two Emmy Awards, eight Grammy Awards, 14 World Music Awards. She had 16 Billboard Music Awards and 22 American Music Awards. She holds the record for the most American Music Awards received in a single year by a woman with eight wins in one night in 1994. Um, She's the top-selling female R&B artist of the 20th century. She in twenty as of twenty twelve she'd sold more physical singles than any other female solo artist in history. Um, you know she's the first and only black artist to have three diamond certified albums. Um, her first two albums, uh, 
as well as her 1992 release, The Bodyguard soundtrack, are among the best-selling albums of all time. The Bodyguard soundtrack still remains the best-selling soundtrack album of all time, with global sales of over 45 million copies. You know, the soundtrack to The Preacher's Wife is the best-selling gospel album of all time. Like, this is a woman who, by the time, you know, by the end of the 2000s, or the beginning of the 2000s, is just iconic and a legend. Like everyone knows Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, then she goes through almost 10 years of like decline. And yeah, it's an, in, it's an interesting question. Like, what do you come back with? How do you re-enter the conversation? And so, as I mentioned, you know, there, there'd been a lot of trouble. You know, I look to you, which is the album that this was on, was the first number... When it was released, it was their first number one album since 1992's Bodyguard soundtrack. So as as ever-present as she was, like, and as popular as the, her output was in the 90s, she hadn't had like a number one album since this, or since 1992. So what is that, 13, 14 years? Yeah. Um, In 2000, she came out, they released the Greatest Hits double-disc set which had the, I remember it was, I, I loved this album. It was David LaChapelle shot the cover and um, it had the throwdown and the cooldown. And so the throwdown had all of these dance, had her upbeat songs and they were all remixed. Um, and the cooldown had like all of her ballads. And the throwdown is where we get the It's Not Right But It's Okay remix, which, you know, shoots to number four on the um, US dance charts. I mean, it's, huge for her um or sorry that was a big deal star spangled banner plus uh the one moment in time live from the grammys uh is also on that amazing um and another song which i guess this is the beginning you know when this is the beginning of that sort of slide um same script different cast do you remember that song i i do not oh my god okay See, this is why. But same script, different cast was a duet with Deborah Cox. Okay. And it was like a grown-up version of The Boy Is Mine. Um, they're hmm. trading back and forth, her and Deborah. Um, Deborah Cox, interestingly enough, uh, who, you know, most of you, most people know her from her Nobody's Supposed to Be Here uh, remix. Mm-hmm. Um, had had When she first came on the scene in the late 90s, uh, they had promoted her as kind of like, the next the second coming of Whitney Houston. Yeah. She has a voice that's very similar. Um and also worked with Clive Davis. Like he took her under his wing. Oh. Um she I never know, really captured the moment in that way. No. I mean I know that when they did the uh the Whitney Houston unauthorized biopic on like Lifetime with Yaya DaCosta, mm-hmm. I think Deborah Cox did the the vocals. I think so. For that. Because she, movie. I mean, she, she, she can sing like Whitney, basically. Um, same script, different cast. Cast. Um, only hits number 70 on the Billboard Hot 100. However, on the dance charts, thanks to the gays, it goes to number four. Because they used to play this song a lot. <laughs> campy. It's very campy. It's very, um, you know, uh, mommy dearest. Um, <laughs> okay. For like. <laughs> So that comes out in 2000. 2000 is the year where like things start to just come apart, right? Where where her 
highly, or Whitney's like highly crafted and polished public persona really just, like there'd always been rumors that like she'd been late to things and, you know, she was kind of flighty or whatever. It really comes to a head in 2000. Uh, in January of 2000, they find um, a little bit of marijuana in her purse as she's trying to fly out of Hawaii. I don't know if you remember this. This is like the, it was kind of, it was a big deal because like, you remember when marijuana was like a really big deal? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. people getting caught. She had like half an ounce in her bag. They caught it at the airport. However, she just left her bag and got on the plane and left the state. <sighs> so like before the authorities could like come. <laughs> So it became this huge deal, obviously, because yeah. it's like Whitney Houston, arguably the biggest pop star in the world, has drugs in her bag and just like leaves them at the airport. And, yeah. you know, uh, I think charges were eventually dropped, but um, it created it. It was like, huh? You know, it was like the first that was like a huge story. Yeah, that was in January. The Os- at the Oscars later that spring, she was very she was publicly she was fired from the oscars by burt Bacharach, who was producing the musical segments um she was supposed to do over the rainbow uh in a tribute to judy garland because they were gonna they were talking it was like it was gonna be like a tribute to like all these famous like oscar winning movie songs and apparently she showed up very very late and when she did show up she kept singing different songs <laughs> besides over the rainbow and she was like very combative and and um, aloof, so he fired her, um, and Faith Hill came in to replace her at like the last minute. Huh. So that became a huge. It, it was very public. Um, none of this was a secret. Um, you know, because when is- she later said it was because of drugs, like in, in one of her later interviews. But at the time, she just said she she had throat. Her throat wasn't feeling well. When does the whole like crack is whack era so, happen? It comes, that's in uh, 2002. So this okay. is like, that's what I'm saying. So it starts in 2000. Yeah. Right. And she's got these highly, Whitney Houston, unheard of, caught with drugs at the airport, fired from the Oscars. Right. Like this woman who has responsible for the best selling, what remains the best selling soundtrack album of all time is fired from the Oscars because she's just all over the place. Like it was, it was news because it was, again, she's still like the biggest pop star in the world. 2001 a year later uh do you remember that the the tribute to michael jackson it was like his celebrating 30 years and it was like this huge spectacle it was like what they had done for freddie mercury although like michael jackson was still alive but they brought in all these people to like is that when like in, did nsync come out in sync i also remember liza minnelli which is <laughs> very strange but whitney comes out and she performs and i don't remember what she performed but if you remember the tabloid, because you know we were talking about J Lo last week, and we we're talking about how the 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 tabloid culture sort of becoming a thing. The they had taken the the pictures from that telecast of Whitney at that show. I think it was like two nights at Madison Square Garden, and she was super frail and thin, mm. very emaciated looking, and people were like, "What is going on?" Um, she, her publicist said. That, you know, she was dealing with a lot of family stress. And when she's stressed, she doesn't eat. And so that's why, you know, she's fine. She's just stressed out. Um, later, again, when she does an interview, she says that it's because it was because of her drug use. Um, but she looked really bad. Do you remember that? I'm looking at the photos now. I 
do I, I don't remember this actually happening. I do remember seeing these photos circulating. Yeah, her. yeah. And so, you, you know, Flop Redeemer, we talk about, like, why did these things flop? We talk about, like, you know, what were all of the things that caused songs to flop? And, you know, with Whitney Houston, I'm like, you know, when you, sometimes you go back and you're like, oh, this is a great song. And you look, just look at the Wikipedia, you look at the other songs at the time, you're like, yeah, why did this flop? Then you dig into it and you're like, okay, starting like nearly nine years earlier, she had, there were all of these, like this string of things that like are just chipping away and not just chipping away, just like taking away the shine and the sparkle from everything that she'd built in the previous 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it's, and it's, hugely public now what's what's crazy is in 2001 while all this is happening she also and i didn't remember this she renewed her contract with arista for a hundred million dollars for six albums plus mm. royalties so it was a hundred million dollars plus and i was thinking like in 2001 because it seems like a like, big risk to i take. mean it seems like maybe that's what they were doing because didn't virgin give mariah a hundred million dollars yeah. that she Later that year, I mean, I wonder if like when Mariah backed out of her Virgin deal, the hundred million dollar deal, or when she got fired from it, mm -hmm. if Arista was like, shit, well, what have we done? With yeah, I wonder, I mean, to me, like at the time that Mariah got that record deal, it didn't seem. No, she wasn't. She wasn't a train wreck. Yeah, it didn't seem like a huge, it didn't seem like a big risk. I feel like mm -hmm. by, by the time we're at like 2000, what, 2002? Mm-hmm. You know, Whitney was Whitney still had hits. Yeah, they weren't the biggest hits. I think you saw. I, I think with Whitney more than Mariah, you saw the writing on the wall that you know maybe you didn't see the direction that her life was headed, but you maybe saw the writing on the wall that she wasn't going to be like the hottest pop singer anymore. Yeah, I I think it's interesting because if you you know I was saying two thousand was when her greatest hits album comes out. And those are, I mean, you, it's like eight, the first, the throwdown, which has all the ballads, it's like 18 tracks or whatever. And you're like, this is an incredible list of songs, right? Like mm -hmm. these chart topping songs, even the dance numbers, the, the remixes, they're all great. Or not all of them, you know, some of them. Are. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, by 2001, yeah, you, you start, like, you think about it, and I, you know, obviously we're looking at this with, like, 2020, you know, what is it? What's that? Uh, hindsight. <laughs> hindsight is 2020. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you're like, how could anyone have thought that that run would have continued? Right? Like, I mean, in 2001, by the way, you know, J-Lo had already come back and was becoming a certified superstar with, you know, such non-vocal hits as... <laughs> Uh, if you had my love and waiting for tonight, like Britney Spears is coming up and is one of the biggest pop stars in the world at that time, not known for her vocals. Yeah. Um, you know, even Destiny's Child to some extent, right? Like is 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 getting bigger at this time. And their vocals were are are good, but they're not like you don't have like the singular Whitney Houston type of thing, right? And and yeah, so to your point about taking a risk, $100 million for six more albums, and you're like, what is she going to do? How is she going to, how is Whitney going to, how is that Whitney going to fit into this world? Yeah. 
in any way that would make it worth $100 million. <laughs> um, so then we get to 2002. She comes out with Just Whitney. And that's, you know, this, this is her first album since, you know, the drug the, the, the drug thing, the getting fired from the Oscars, the frailness at the Michael Jackson tribute. This is the first album of hers that is not produced by Clive Davis. Hmm. Um, and that's because Clive Davis had been fired by Arista BMG. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember they like fired him. And um, this album does not do well. Uh, it's It's... It was her. It was her highest cha- charting. It, you know, it was like a number one album that year. But also, like there was nothing. The bar was starting to be lowered because metrics were changing. You know, mm-hmm. like, didn't sell anything. Didn't take much to be number one. She had um, her first single, "One of Those Days," which I actually like. Um, one of those days only hits number seventy two. Um. She has a ballad as this follow-up single, Try It On My Own, 84. Hits 84. Like, it's not doing it. And and I think this is one of those albums where, like, you can hear her voice is not the same. Like, it's becoming evident that, like, so so she has all this bad publicity, and then and now it's like the instrument is damaged. Yeah. And I think people are like, wait, <laughs> I think, I'm not here for this. I, I, I don't know if it was this album. I remember when I was watching the Whitney documentary, there was... Um, there was a whole period of time and people weren't really talking about it, about how erratic her behavior was, how unreliable she was. They were saying like she would show up in the studio, be in the studio for like days and days and days. And then suddenly just like not, you know, and just the struggles, the, the increasing struggles they had to actually get her to be in the recording studio making music. And, you know, the fact that like her her issues that she had with drugs, it wasn't like a new thing. It was like one of those like best kept secrets that like, you know, even in, I think the eighties that, you know, they talk about, she, according to that documentary, like she could, she could, um, what's the phrase? Basically how everyone always thought Bobby Brown is a bad influence. Bobby Brown is corrupting Whitney Houston. They're actually like, actually it was like kind of the other way around. Like Whitney could do so many more drugs than Bobby Brown. Like Mm -hmm. he was a lightweight compared to her, you know, and it just seemed like at that time around 2000, 2001, that it started to bubble over and affect her public persona, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I remember. So I don't it must, it must have been 99 2000 i wonder if it was around the time that she did the where she had the drug bust <laughs> not drug bust but my brother got tickets to see cuz uh one of his friends my younger brother his 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 friend's mom was like a realtor and one of her clients gave her tickets to see Whitney in Hawaii um and i was so jealous cuz my brother didn't give a shit and he was like oh, you know and i meanwhile i'm over here like can i go you know <laughs> please and he's like no so they go she was two hours late to start and so all he said was she was two hours late to start and she couldn't hit the high note and i will always love you and that's the thing in you know so you were you were already hearing for a while that there was this sort of unreliability you know there were there were cracks then um 
And then uh, one thing I didn't talk about in 2001, after the Michael Jackson thing, uh, uh, I, I believe her mom wrote about in July, they, the family got to, family and friends got together to try and stage an intervention and get her into rehab and they failed. Um, 2001 is also when Robin Crawford, her assistant and like rumored longtime girlfriend, like quit. Mm. So, um, I I feel like in the documentary she was forced out. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's that's that's what I mean. That's like this is the thing about the Whitney story. It's like so many conflicting narratives, and yeah. everyone's got their own their own side of it. But so, just Whitney comes out in two thousand two. I don't know if it was like a round of promo for this, but that's when she sits down with Diane Sawyer. Her and Bobby sit down with Diane Sawyer, and she infamously, you know, Diane asks her, "Do you smoke crack cocaine?" And Whitney famously says crack is whack. Crack is cheap. She makes too much damn money to smoke crack. Um, And that she never smoked crack, but she did do cocaine. Um, And she used to mix, I think, heroin and cocaine with marijuana to level it off. Mm. Right? And she, you know, she's show me the receipts, all those things. And and that's where her and Bobby are both very sweaty on that couch. Like, it, it spawned... So like I mean it was just it was just like um a very public unraveling mm-hmm. of the myth of Whitney Houston, essentially, right? Like it was like the wizard the wizard yeah. at the end of the Wizard of Oz. And I think it was just kind of shocking. It was mm-hmm. shocking. And and you know, you you talk about being late or being in the studio and being unreliable. I think that's when Mad TV started doing those sketches with mm. um is it Deborah Wilson? That sketch the, the actress, name? yeah, I think so. She she played Bobby, 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 you know, like just doing all that. And Whitney's, uh, what was it? Whitney screws up the classics with one <laughs> sketch, and it was like her in a studio, smoking by the dock of the bay, getting high, it just it, hilarious at the time. Um, and that's the thing I think now that it's just like. In 2021, someone's very public downfall in very public struggle with addiction would not be treated this way. I don't think. Yeah. In the same way. Well, I mean, look at like, uh, look at Demi Lovato, you know? Yeah. That, you know, the public, I think, is rallying behind them to, you know, take the steps towards recovery, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, not making light of their situation where, like, they almost died from an overdose. Yeah, and I do think that they kind of, they do the, um, they, 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 I don't want to say give them the benefit of the doubt or give, they, I feel like they respect a little, there's an expectation I don't know how to say this. Not like an expectation of privacy, but there's not the as exploitative uh, pursuit of of whatever like of humiliating hum, of of humiliation that pervaded that time in the press and yeah, the coverage of people like that the hounding I don't think that people um as as it pertains to like Whitney Houston I don't think that people were afraid to make light of her situation yeah yeah um, yeah you know and it, that that said it's like 
No, I guess things did get pretty heavy with Whitney Houston. Like I remember mm-hmm. when the tabloids published the photos of her bathroom. Of her bathroom, and it was like a it was literally a crack den. Yeah. It, it just frightening. Yeah. Like her and like it terrifying. And I mean, so that comes after so in two thousand so 2002 is the Diane Sawyer interview. 2004 is when Being Bobby Brown, the reality series on Bravo, comes out. And The Guardian, the newspaper, the British newspaper, um, described it as, uh, quote, the last remnants of her dignity. The Hollywood Reporter at the time said it was, quote, unquote, or, quote, undoubtedly the most disgusting and execrable series ever to ooze its way onto television. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, reality TV was sort of in its infancy at the time. Like what we, I think it was especially shocking because we didn't have the vocabulary or the fluency and the familiarity with uh, reality TV in 2004 as we do now or Mm -hmm. as much, right? Um, Well, I think that when reality TV hit, it became... uh, it became sensationalistic and exploitative very, very quickly. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it went from, it went really quickly from like, um, extreme makeover, right. Where an American idol where, where it went from like, you know, women getting plastic surgery for, to, to pursue their dreams or whatever. Right. Like extreme makeover. Mm -hmm. And then it very quickly went into, um, the swan, which was the beauty it was like a beauty pageant staged for women who were getting plastic surgery to be more beautiful, mm-hmm. you know? And then it went from like the bachelor to that Joe millionaire show about yeah. like the man yeah. pretending to be a millionaire. Like it, it, it escalated so quickly Yeah, from kind of just, I guess what you would consider more of a regular documentary television series into these things that were like, what are the most, terrible situations we can put human beings into and then capture on film. And that whole Whitney Houston, the Bobby being Bobby Brown show, I feel like it really did capitalize on that movement Mm -hmm. of like, what is the most outrageous things that we can capture between these two people and Mm -hmm. actually air, you know? Yeah. And it was so bad. I mean, it was because we, I watched that. I watched, at least most of it or some of it. I mean, I just remember just being like, this is, you know, it was that thing. It's like, oh, who is Whitney Houston? Like the Whitney Houston that we thought we know is nothing like the Whitney Houston who actually exists. Mm-hmm. And you would have liked to think that in a, in a different time under different circumstances, she could have been more herself and that she would have been accepted that way, you know, and would have found acceptance, found a way to like kind of navigate that. Um, but it was so unvarnished, to put it lightly, um, that it just, I mean, it really, you know, it just destroyed any remaining sort of public goodwill, I think, towards her mm-hmm. or sense of like, I mean, any, any, I feel like, again, because we as the public weren't as sensitive to like yeah. what she was going through at that time. Um, it made her, it, it, she became a joke, a huge joke. Yeah, a huge joke. Yeah, and it's 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 hard to understate like what a fall from grace that was for someone like Whitney Houston. Yeah. Right, who 
was like at, at her peak represented in some ways the best that America had to offer. Um, you know, and just rep- yeah, the heights that someone could reach on their talent. Yeah. Right. And to your point, like someone who had been packaged in such a sanitized wrapper for so mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. to suddenly see not not only see that wrapper fall away, but then to see her actual self degrade over time. Yeah. Because I think like, you know, when they showed the archival footage of her, like home videos of her from like the 80s, like it's she was never, you know, the perfect, you know, straight postured, poised woman that they presented her to be. Mm-hmm in her album mm-hmm. and album covers, right? She always had a little bit of an edge to her. She always had a little bit of an attitude and stuff in her private life, it seems. You know, when you catch when you catch the footage of her talking to her mom or talking to her mm-hmm. her assistant or, you know, there's archival footage of her with Robin and stuff. And, you know, she just seemed like a very real, more rounded human being and not this perfect alabaster statue, uh-huh. <laughs> right, that we yeah. were handed. Um. You know, and then so then to see that fall apart, especially the lengths to which it fell apart in the course of that series. Yeah. Yeah. It was just shocking. It's, it's it's sad that it was that the world that we responded as it was a joke. Yeah. Like, you know, it, not with empathy and not with like what is happening, how what role did you know, the industry, what role did the public, what role did the media play in like creating this pressure that like didn't, you know, that, that created this situation. We just were like, yeah, well, you know, Whitney's screw up and like, look at her, like, let's laugh about her duty bubble or whatever, you know, like all that stuff. And, you know, continued, obviously continued to blame Bobby Brown. Um, (laughs) And they ended up divorcing two years later after that came out. So in 2006, they divorced. Um, Uh, in 2009, Whitney gives her first interview. So the the year, so like right when the album is coming out, I Look to You is coming out. She gives her first interview in seven years to Oprah. And Oprah says it's the best interview that she's ever done. Um, and you can tell there's a lot of love that Oprah has for Whitney. They ha- they go way back, right? And um, you know, there was there was famously that 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 interview between Oprah, Whitney, and Mariah. They sat down. It was like around the time the Prince of Egypt came out. They mm-hmm. did um You Will When You Believe. They performed yeah. that song together. But you know, that was a that was a that was a seminal moment, I think, in pop music history or in pop culture history, because you know, these two women who were so long for so long had been pitted against each other because they both had big voices and you know to some extent both of them had had felt like they had to sanitize themselves to be palatable to the mostly white mainstream pop audiences um you know they had an actual moment and and to have that in public on 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 oprah's show was a big deal and so you know oprah's history with whitney goes way back so she she goes back to her Whitney goes to Oprah for her kind of relaunch, reboot of her career. She has, you know, again, I think in just the few years before this is when those tabloid photos of her bathroom where she'd been living in squalor, like, you know, uh, that had come out. So it had been an awful few years. Um, And, uh, you know, she comes out, they have this, 
great interview. And she sings what in the U.S. becomes the lead single. It's I, um, I Look to You. Um, or I Didn't Know My Own Strength, mm-hmm. I should say. Sorry. Yeah. And this is this period where I Didn't Know My Own Strength is a song that was written by Diane Warren. Um, it's very Diane Warren-y. <laughs> you know, I, I, about the, the troubles that she has overcome. But to watch, if you watch Whitney sing this song, you watch these performances from the Oprah show. She ends up singing this on um, uh, American Music Awards later that year. Her voice is not what it used to be. It's kind of, there's a gravel and grit to it. It's, it's clearly been ravaged by, you know, the last nine years and, and longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also gives it this emotional weight that her, her voice didn't always have because it was so pristine. And she sings a song about how she, she didn't know her own strength. She, you know, she, she crashed, she, but she didn't crumble, like all of this stuff. And it's very moving, right? Like in, in terms of this arc of like, she's coming back and she's acknowledging in song sort of where she, what she's been through. And so, you know, she's building up this goodwill, I think, to really just kind of come back. She said it took the, her three years to do the album um, because she took her time. There was a lot of stuff going on. Um, Clive Davis first mentioned that he was working with her in 2007. So, and that's about the same time that Alicia Keys, that's that's the the interview where he says this is where Alicia Keys says she she knew that they were going to do this this album. And that's when, that's why she reached out to, to write Million Dollar Bill. But yeah, it took, it took a long time. And you, you think listening to the song or listening to the album, uh, probably a lot of vocal production had to go into yeah. it uh, to kind of smooth it out. But the the album comes out, and um, you know it's a it's a hit for her. She she does full promo, and I'm I I'm focusing on Million Dollar Bill because I think it's it's just fun. I listen to this song now, and I'm like, this song is fun. It reminds me of like sort of, it takes me back to the How Will I Know. I just want to dance with somebody, the fun Whitney that like she kind of first came out with. And it, it sort of recaptures that in a more mature moment. And so I was mm. thinking like, well, why, why did this song flop then? It comes out, it's number two. She has all this goodwill. It is a best-selling album. It it becomes her, her best. It becomes her first number one album since, like I said, 1992's Bodyguard. Um, why didn't it work? Why did it only chart at 100 on the Hot 100? <sighs> well, and then you have to go back, right? So then I go back and I look at her uh, performances of this. She debuts this song, like she she. So basically, when they come out with this, they they did this. Um, they did three listening session listening parties for the industry. One was in London. Um, had a lot of people there, and so what she does is. She then performs on UK I uh UK X Factor. Is it X Factor London, I guess? Okay. And uh X Factor London, this is 2009. Simon Cowell's there. I think Cheryl Cole is one of the judges as well. It's obviously a huge, a huge show in England. Um, she and Clive Davis do they surprise all of the contestants. Um 
by having by by being there and they basically do like a masterclass or like a singing session with each contestant. And so the contestants come in, they sing their song to Whitney and Clive and they provide feedback and for the most part it's pretty it's pretty good. There's one where um one of the contestants says he's going to sing I didn't know my own strength, which Simon Cowell said he wanted he told this kid to sing this song and had to get special permission from Whitney because the album hadn't come out yet. And mm-hmm. so he comes out and this kid sings it and you see Whitney go hmm. hmm. Uh, you know, I you know, Clive is like, you know, you're you're kind of losing the melody a little bit when you when you sing it and Whitney's like, you know, I I really think you should go back and Listen, really, go back to the melody. <laughs> Just stick to the melody. <laughs> and so she does, you know, but for the most part, I was watching this. For the most part, all of the all of the 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 feedback they're giving, she's giving is like very constructive. And actually, she tells a couple of people, like, oh, you have a voice of an angel, you sound really great. Um when the show airs, like uh, during the performance, uh, you know, there's there's like the day where they do the audition or whatever. I don't know how you call it. Mm-hmm. The sessions. And then there's the performance day. Um, she comes out and she performs Million Dollar Bill. And two seconds in, like one of the straps of her dress breaks in the back. And so it's kind of flapping around. She's struggling with that. She's she's almost tripping on her on her dress because it's a little long. And she's very out of breath. Like it's like it's an upbeat song mm-hmm. and she's kind of struggling with it. She doesn't sound great. The British press kind of rake her over the coals for this performance. They say it was weird. It was erratic. It was ungracious, ungrateful. Um, like I said, I watched some of this. I didn't think that like the the feedback she was giving again it goes back to like media perception and how they shape they really had it in for her because she'd been a joke for a long time Mm -hmm. so i think they picked up on every any any part of feedback that wasn't like super like congratulatory to these contestants they kind of jumped on her but to be fair the performance of this song was kind of in keeping with the messy nature of her appearances in the previous decade yeah Um, i remember when this album came out and when she was on her promotional tour like there was a lot of there was a lot of questions about like what is her voice going to sound like when she goes on these live promotional tours because i remember um when she did good it was the good morning america series Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i don't even know if she made it through those songs you know like i feel like there were points where her voice would just literally stop working you know and yeah, she just looked tired. She looked very sweaty, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, it was hard to watch. And I think it ran yeah. counter to the narrative that they were trying to d- deliver of like, this is her comeback. She's all better yeah. now. Like, you know, it felt it, it made that it made those statements feel kind of empty yeah, it made me because really the feel proof like wasn't in the pudding. Exactly, like you know, because and it, and it and it was something that I felt really conflicted about because I I remember the Good Morning America series at least it seemed like a very big outdoor concert setup, you know, and it, 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 if it is something, you know, as simple as like maybe she just she just needs smaller, more intimate spaces to like de- re debut herself, you know, mm-hmm. so that she doesn't mm-hmm. feel like she needs to fill an arena with her voice anymore, you know, I feel like it, 
steps could have been taken to preserve her her comeback in that way you know yeah they could have it should have it should have been handled better and i think the difficulty with this is that because her downfall had been so public you know and the app the public appetite for her like i mean she truly it's hard i can i can also see it from like a pr perspective how do you say that she's come back and she's fine if you're only doing cabaret type shows Mm-hmm. Or something where it's like more intimate, right? Because that's not what she did before. And it would seem to be like a diminishment of her abilities, right? Even though we know that they are. I, I think it would have been handled differently now. Yeah. Because it there would have been a different way of acknowledging it. And to your point, I think it would have... They could have crafted an intimate sort of thing because Mariah did that too. Remember when she, after when she was kind of coming back from her very public breakdown, she did smaller shows. Mm-hmm. She did a bunch of very like kind of small, intimate. She she was like, "Oh, I just want to be close to my fans. It's been a while." And you're like, "Girl, <laughs> we know what's going on." But like it was handled differently. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's no denying that. If if you even if you listen to the album, there's no denying that Whitney Houston's yeah. voice was not what it once was. Mm-hmm. There's no, I don't think there really was a point in pretending, like you know, her voice was the same as it was when she was in her twenties. Um, and I don't think that there's a reasonable expectation that it, it should have been. You know, yeah. I think it's personally re- uh, it's perfectly reasonable that you know she's she's older, she's been through a lot, her voice is different, and mm-hmm. You know, if she's not capable of the same things she once was, like, you know, that doesn't mean that her comeback is a failure. You know, what I think was a failure was trying to push the comeback, like, because everyone was like, the voice is back. The voice is back. In fact, that was a big mistake. Yeah. Yeah. That's a messaging. And you you wonder, like, whose fault is that? Right. Mm -hmm. Because clearly, I think by looking at her and, and watching the footage of of her at that time and and you know who knows how candid she's being she clearly believed the voice was back she clearly believed that she was going to resume her retake her throne right like yeah. assume her re, resume her position on the throne and i mean obviously she's earned a lot of respect over time but yeah it's like is it that is it her team that's pushing the the voices back narrative what who's who's what was in play? Like, what was the what was the reason for that? Because, like, like you said, it's like it's very. It, the minute she went out, it was like the charade is over. The sh- the, the gig is up. Like, yeah. like we know what's going up. Um, and so she did. She did do some award shows performances, and then she did. Um, she had a world tour, and her world tour was. Can- I mean, essentially, most of a lot of the shows were canceled due to quote unquote illness. Um. And people, I think Eric, our friend Eric, went to see her at O2, the O2 Arena in London, and was like, it was terrible. Like, she could not sing anything. And that was kind of the 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 report from everywhere that she went. It was just negative publicity. And so that kind of just kind of, it ended with a whimper. And you'd hear from her every now and again, but that was, you know, as you got into 2010. And by February 2012, she died. So... I mean, it's it's kind of you know it's 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 funny you know to go back and listen to this, uh, and be like, why didn't this work? And then you you know you're like, oh, this song is so joyful and it's so good, Million Dollar Bill. I do love this song, and I do 
I do want people to listen to it because I think it's a bright, it's, it is a rare bright spot at basically the end of a very troubled life. Yeah. Right. And like, if you, you don't have to necessarily go back to the eighties and just listen to how will I know, or, you know, um, I wanted to answer with somebody to get that sense of joy. Whitney was capable of producing it, you know, in 2009. And I, you know, I do think that more people should know this song because it is fun. Um, but it is sad how it ends. And it was a little bit sad to like kind of dig into like, oh yeah, this is why it didn't work, you know, and ultimately why it was doomed and, and kind of why she was doomed, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think that when it comes to songs like this that are uplifting, that are, you know, kind of like positivity anthems mm-hmm. you want to believe or you kind of for you to buy into it you kind of need to believe that it's reflective of the truth of a situation and yeah I, I think that it was clear from the outset that what this album represented was not necessarily reflective of the truth in yeah. her life you know yeah. that her life wasn't it's 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 not like ta-da magically fixed you know i think it's like again to 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 bring it back to someone like demi lovato um you know she is or they have been given the opportunity to not not need to act like everything is okay yeah yeah they don't need to make music now that is like ta-da i'm fixed i'm happy everything's perfect you know they continue to express their struggles express their what we hope is like their true thoughts and feelings you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and work through that publicly right yeah. like they're they're given sort of the i mean they're given it's also it's also clearly part of a plan i mean there's a there's a pr apparatus in place to bring the public and fans around to feeling that empathy and you know, trying to understand the nuance and give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know, it's a very humanizing approach. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and it's, it's something that was not for whatever reason, whether it just wasn't like she was too far gone or whatever that was not given to Whitney. Yeah. Like that wasn't an option for her. Well, I think for so long it was unpopular for celebrities to have flaws. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of, you know, the tabloid fodder of celebrities, they're just like us. That was used as a way to demean celebrities. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. like celebrities are just like us. Like, yeah. isn't this nice? It was like, oh, celebrities are just like us. They're disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Like, 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 uh, uh, so-and-so spilled their coffee all over themselves at the gas station or yeah. whatever. Like it was. Look at the back of so-and-so's thighs. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and so, and so I think it's, it's. And we're turning that around now where that idea of celebrities are just like us is more of a rallying cry to empathize with them, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever they're going through, like you understand, well, yeah, like, you know, 20 some odd years of hardcore drug abuse and, you know, whatever emotional torment Whitney was going through, that's not something that's fixed yeah, you know, in and, in, a, yeah. in a matter of a few years, it's not something that Clive Davis is going to fix for you. <laughs> it's also it's also like this idea that 
I think we have a better understanding that just because you've pursued fame does not mean that you deserve every bad thing that happens as a result of that fame, mm -hmm. right? That like, you don't deserve to be mistreated. Yes, you're asking for a certain amount for, for increased visibility, but again, that humanizing part of it, like we don't expect that, okay, we can say whatever we want to you then. Yeah. And you you shouldn't have any feelings about it because this is the trade off, like, you know. Um. So yeah. So I I really do hope that people you know discover this song if you don't already know it. Um, and and kind of, it was the last single released in her lifetime. Um, a fun fact about this song is that, uh, the music video was directed by Melina Matsukas. Okay. Who you may know, she did Queen. She she's she's had a, an illustrious career at this point. Um, her movie last year, Queen and Slim, um, came out. I mean, she she's done Beyonce's like Formation video. She's done all these other. She did Rihanna's We Found Love. She also directed J Lo's video for Hold It, Don't Drop It. Nice. Yeah. So last week's episode crossover. <laughs> but that's it. That's Million Dollar Bill. If it makes you feel like a million dollar bill. Just say it. Just say it, and uh, you can email us if uh, it makes you feel like a million, million dollar, million dollar bill, million dollar bill, million dollar bill. Um, am I am I taking us out? Is I that... think you're taking us out. Okay, look at that record time. Excellent I job, know. Jason. Thank you so much for that. And special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Uh, songs and videos, again featured in today's episode, will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Check us out on social media at Flop Redeemer, on Instagram and Twitter, and at facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. As always, um, send us some emails. We we open them and sometimes read them. It's, you, can get, you can get into our inbox at uh, flopredeemer at gmail.com. The trick for me is using this computer, which has the browser that is already logged into Flop Redeemer, <laughs> so that I don't have to change profiles. It's one click. It's one click, Jason. You know what? Now it's one click. Okay. It was not one click before. Okay. So now, yes, listeners, I can see your emails. <laughs>